0: Shall I compare thee to a purple haze? The lavender infection of thine eye puts me in mind of my more groovy days when I would beg excuse
1: to kiss the sky. From WNET in New York, this is WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening here and help you to get to know the people who create our programs. Today, it's Segaler on Shakespeare. Steven Segaler is our Vice President of Programming here at WNET. He oversees all of our national programming efforts, including our signature series Nature, American Masters, and Great Performances. His passion for Shakespeare has led to our presentation of Shakespeare Uncovered and many Shakespeare performance films. April 2016 marks the 400th anniversary of the death of William Shakespeare. And to commemorate the Bard, WNAT is celebrating Shakespeare on-air and online. Stephen ho, and welcome to WNATF Next. (laughs) Thank you, Tom. Lovely to be here. Uh, Today you are here as our number one advocate for all things Shakespeare. So uh, I'd like to ask you just a little bit for you about your background and how Shakespeare became such an important part of your life.
0: Well, It started pretty early on. I was in England, grew up in England, and I was in the equivalent of first grade, age six. And there was some kind of Christmas pageant being planned. My kindergarten or first grade teacher was named Miss Kane. Miss Kane was planning some kind of Christmas pageant, and everybody had to contribute something, some kind of performance. And my mother, who uh, was a Shakespeare fan, decided that I should uh, learn and recite the speech of Henry V on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt. I'm sure you know it. This story shall the good man tell his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for every man that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile, This day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen of England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whiles any speaks
1: that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. It's beautiful. And I say, move over, Larry Olivier. Move over, Kenneth Branagh. We have Mr. Segali here well, to do this for us. It's I wa- great.
0: I want to f- just make a note that there may have been one or two words there that were not
1: entirely accurate, but right. then... We, we may hear from our viewers, our listeners, <laughs> yes. uh, actually. But how, so how did that develop? How did it become such an important part of your life? Because obviously that planted a seed which just continued. It, it did. I mean, I was so young and I so
0: loved learning it Frankly, it was a great pleasure to my mum that I'd been able to do it. Of course, it didn't go off entirely without a hitch, because I was wearing a little costume and I had a little cardboard sword in my hand. And <laughs> on, the, on the final words, St. Crispin's Day, I, p- threw the, I, I waved the sword up into the heavens, and all of the paper decorations for the Christmas <laughs> holidays came down on my head.
1: Sturical. Uh, but nonetheless... Very entertaining, I'm sure, was, for all involved
0: and i did enjoy getting a laugh and that was that was uh that led me to do much less shakespeare and much more comedy when i was in college and doing uh bad amateur acting and performing anyway it it made me understand that there was this wonderful language and this wonderful um effect it had on people and only then only later you know maybe age 8 or 9 years old did i see a shakespeare play performed first one like for many young victims was Midsummer Night's Dream but Midsummer Night's Dream is full of fun and magic and the, the silly play within the play with all of those characters um are entertaining you have to be pretty bad theater company not to do that well not to do that get a good uh, effect on the audience mm. from Midsummer Night's Dream and the and the, the what they call the, the rude Mechanicals*. the rude mechanicals um
1: Pyramus and this now,
0: footnote here there was a wonderful ITV TV show that ran all through the 60s and into the 70s, which was a rock and roll show, live studio show, called Ready Steady Go. And although this piece of video is constantly being taken down from YouTube and other video sites for reasons of copyright, if you can find it, there's a segment in one of those Ready Steady Go shows where the Beatles do the rude mechanicals scene from the middle of Midsummer Night's Dream with John Lennon playing Bottom. Great. Viewing tip. And it tells you something about how, I think certainly in England, but not by any means only in England, Shakespeare's work is really in people's bloodstream, their DNA, pick your metaphor. It's in the culture. Those four guys, the Beatles, were geniuses of a certain kind, but they weren't terribly well educated. They might have read one or two Shakespeare plays if they'd been forced to in school, but everybody in England sort of knows this work. And there was a big opinion poll done in Britain a couple of years ago about what did people in Britain really value the most about British culture. Number one was
1: Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Four hundred years after he died, how do how do you account for that that four hundred years? Uh, what is it in his work? I know that we don't have that much time <laughs> to really <laughs> get down to it, but but just in a, in, a, in a simple way, what what is the overall thing that that mm-hmm. makes him so great? Well.
0: Far be it from me to try to do what, in in 10 seconds, what scholars like Harold Bloom or James Shapiro have done with their whole lifetime careers writing about Shakespeare. But I think, first of all, he had a great, great eye for a plot. And he wasn't shy about changing the facts, changing the chronological facts and the truth of plots that he either borrowed or, frankly, stole from other writers. Other sources, or making them up, and plot is plot key. Is, plot yeah. is key. Plot takes, gets, gets you a long way. Uh, obviously, his mastery of language, his invention of words and phrases to to describe things that nobody had ever described before, that's incredible. Um, and now that we have four hundred years of, of of record to examine, it is an indisputable fact that Shakespeare's work is more widely performed and read and experienced than the work of any other writer, bar none, not just in the English language, anyone. Uh, And it is so widely and, and, um, in some cases, uh, radically adapted. Yes. But it still survives. Yes. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating as we've been producing Shakespeare Uncovered is we've discovered uh, Richard Denton, who's the, the producer who actually brought me the project, Uh, in his research has discovered that for hundreds of years, in one case about 200 years, Shakespeare's plays were rewritten by later writers so that they were radically different and performed that way for, you know, by 1850. There'd been 150 years of performing Romeo and Juliet with a happy ending which was longer than it was performed in its original form, and then it was happily restored. restored, so it's now King Lear was performed
1: with a happy ending. I think there's been some experimentation with that here in this country uh, just in the last year or so with someone taking a Shakespearean plot but essentially rewriting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I heard, to not great effect, someone said, you know, if you're going to do Shakespeare and you're taking the language away, this is just a little crazy to do this.
0: Yeah, but, you know, the the movie Ten Things I Hate About You... Um, the 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 uh, the recent production of Much Ado About Nothing that um, uh, Joss Whedon did in his own home in Los Angeles, Shakespeare is pretty much indestructible, vers- indestructible, indestructible, version yeah, proof. People yeah. will people will do almost anything to Shakespeare, and he still the work
1: survives. Speak and a little bit more about uh, Shakespeare Uncovered. This is mm-hmm. our our series, which is <clears throat> is it in its third season now. Or? We're
0: now about to embark on production of the third and season. Tell
1: me about the concept of that.
0: Well, the concept is a funny story. Um, I've been in the industry a very long time at this point, and there's a, there are a handful of notable documentary producers in Britain whose names I had always heard but I'd never actually met. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not a very big industry, so you sort of think that you will have met everybody after 25 years or whatever. So I was at a documentary festival or market thing in Oxford, England, and when you go to these events you're listed as a, as a participant and you start getting emails from people saying can we have a meeting mm-hmm. and this fellow Richard Denton writes to me and I thought oh I know his name I never met him so we arranged to meet and he said are you interested in shakespeare i said yes he said you know people have written lots of books over the years called prefaces to shakespeare where for a general audience they try to explain why shakespeare is interesting or what you know all of that and he said, but nobody's ever done prefaces on TV. Mm. I said, OK, I'm in. And it just seemed like a really smart idea. And, his, and the way he wanted to do it, which is now well known because we've done it, is each episode looks at one play or a handful of related plays. And one actor, or in one case, one director, asks the, the sort of obvious, simple questions. What did she, why was Shakespeare writing about the Danish royal family? Or why was he writing about the Duke of Athens? Or why was he writing about you know etc. So it gives background and context. Really. Context. What were his source materials? How was it received? And how it was. What was the culture of England at the time when it was first performed? So we understand the what these ideas meant. You know what did what did witches mean to the audience that first saw Macbeth in 1606? Um, not the same as what people thought about witches when they saw the Crucible in the 1950s when arthur miller wrote it and and so it was just asking simple questions exploring the plays and we found that an
1: amazing roster of of uh notable actors Absolutely. were willing to and, participate and, and right now we're we're about to air uh, a whole a group of these programs uh midsummer night's dream with uh, hugh bonneville better right. known as uh the man of downton abbey lord grantham uh king, it was the first midsummer night's
0: dream was the first professional job hugh ever had as an actor
1: in a non-speaking role what we used to call a spear carrier at amazing, the back of the audience, the back of the stage and there's a king Lear with christopher Plummer, i think coming uh kim cattrall mm-hmm. uh, antony and cleopatra has she ever played cleopatra she's played cleopatra
0: twice yes. but regrettably for us she's played it twice both times in britain okay well, um, we and can... we hope that that omission may be corrected one day.
1: In, in terms of the impact of this program so far for uh, the public media viewer, mm-hmm. w- what's it been like? What's the response been? Well, the reaction's been
0: great because you know it takes it it takes the audience back to why the work is interesting. We we intended, and I hope we've succeeded. I think we have. We intended that people who really love Shakespeare and know these plays. Would still get a good deal out of the way we approached them in the documentaries, learning about learning new new, th- new facts, the the facts about the the, the changed endings that were uh, imposed upon the work, or the source material, um, the actors in the in the history of the of, of these plays that have made their names, um, movie adaptations. So that's one target audience, but the other target audience is people who've maybe just heard of these Shakespeare plays, don't really know anything about them, and we hope we'll introduce them with the help of a Jeremy Irons, or a Derek Jacobi or a Jolie Richardson from the first series, or the second, as you say, Hugh and, uh, and Chris Plummer and,
1: and Kim. And, and, and sometimes I think in this country, there's sort of a... The people have a fear of Shakespeare, that somehow that it is alien to them and this is beyond me mm-hmm. I, I i don't you know this is something for other people way up there and in, in mm-hmm. some sense but a program like this kind of breaks that up and, and lets people in and when you realize that oh this is to be f- for everyone
0: i think so and i think there are you know of course numerous terrific theater companies the shakespeare's globe theater now in london which we'll talk about in a minute but also the public theater here in new york I mean, they have made a tremendous effort and a successful effort to make these plays accessible and entertaining. Something that's very interesting for me as an Englishman living in New York, uh, Oscar Eustace, who's the artistic director of the public theatre, has a real commitment to the idea that you don't have to be English to speak Shakespeare's words with authenticity and authority. And my ears don't any longer differentiate between hearing say sam waterston or seeing sam waterston play king lear with his american accent he doesn't put on an english accent so that he can say the words he just he is who he is and i think that's a very smart approach because one of the funny things when you look at for example in our henry v episode um prince hal who becomes henry v is played by tom hiddleston and He's doing the speech that I gave you a, a glimpse of a few minutes ago. Uh, but most people, if you said Henry V, they'd either say Kenneth Branner or they'd say Laurence Olivier. Yes. Now, from Laurence Olivier in 1944 to Kenneth Branagh in, I think, the mid-'80s to Tom Hiddleston in 2012, they all sound different from each other. Yes. They're all English. Actually, Kenneth Branagh is Northern Irish. But... The style and the generational style, the difference.
1: difference. Yeah,
0: and there's more difference between Ke- Lawrence Olivier saying "We few, we happy few," uh, from to, a
1: declamatory style yeah. to a much more uh,
0: personal, intimate. Style. Some some of that is production values, but it's, but it's also. You know, the voice of the person speaking the words is not what you're there to listen to. It's the words.
1: Now, and you've established partnerships with some of these theaters on the work. Do you have them with the Old Globe and with the New York Shakespeare Festival?
0: Well, uh, it's
1: a public theater. It's
0: it's not the Old Globe because okay. that's in uh, I think La Jolla. Okay. This is this is the Globe. The, this is called shakespeare's globe theater Shakespeare is, is the theater, technical term in london
1: which founded by uh, an american i
0: believe sam wanamaker it is a it is indeed an extraordinary story sam wanamaker was a was a hollywood uh a screenwriter and, and i think director who fell on the wrong side of the blacklist and he left the us and went to live in london where he continued to do his work i think under pseudonyms as, as some of those writers did he lived about half a mile from the generally accepted site of where the Shakespeare's Globe once was in okay. Blackfriars on the south side of the river, very close to London Bridge. And he just got it into his head that there should be a new Shakespeare's Globe built. And the, the wonderful end of that story is that he spent, I think, something like 15 years raising money, uh, asking people to buy a brick, you know, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the Shakespeare's Globe was ultimately built and has now been operating, I think, for 20 years. The very sad part of the story is that he didn't live to see it open. He died about a a couple of years before it was up and running. He, he, He did a gigantic favor, a gigantic, wonderful, gave a great legacy to London and you know it's one of the big tourist attractions people come from all over the world to see a Shakespeare play the way they were performed in the first place and correct
1: me if I'm but didn't Mark Rylance uh, do a great deal of work at at the Globe Mark was the
0: first artistic director there and we started working with Shakespeare's Globe as a co-production partner on on Shakespeare Uncovered uh, with his successor Dominic Dromgoole who has basically also had a 10 year run and Dominic is stepping down Uh, the week after the 400th anniversary, at the end of April.
1: I'd also like to ask you about The Hollow Crown.
0: The Hollow Crown is a generic title that has been created to reflect the theme of all four of these plays, which start with Richard II, who was a weak king who was ultimately overthrown by Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke becomes King Henry IV, part one. Then King Henry IV and his wastrel son, Hal, are the, becomes, are the plot of Henry IV part 1 and 2 Henry and he becomes fifth. Henry V. Okay. Um and so those four plays are a more or less continuous narrative. And we call them the Hollow Crown because that's
1: it's we need But a it's been done with title. a continuation of casting and uh, yes. the, the same actors are yes. playing these parts over a period a- of and time. And this
0: was a co-production between David Horne's Great Performances unit and the BBC. And the cast is just unbelievable. Jeremy Irons plays Bolingbroke and uh, ben Whishaw played Richard II and so forth, and now, coming up later in the year, is what is a, one can only call the sequel to the Hollow Crown, which we're calling the Wars of the Roses, mm-hmm. which is that after Henry V, there's a gap, but after Henry V has died, there becomes a there becomes an essentially a civil war in Britain for the crown, and that story is told through the three parts of Henry VI and then Richard III. The, everybody's favorite Shakespearean villain. Now is the
1: winter of our discontent. Can you touch on some of the other ways that we're celebrating Shakespeare? I know that we're doing some uh, online uh, things, which are uh, yes approachable for all. What, yeah. What have we got there?
0: Well, we've, we've you know we had a we've aggregated all of the Shakespeare stuff that we've generated uh, around the great performances, dramas, and the Shakespeare Uncovered documentaries. Um, and when we were producing Shakespeare Uncovered. We had, happily, we had the funding to give um, mini-grants to stations around the country so that they would have a community event and hopefully produce some original content, mm-hmm. which was wonderful because they came up with some truly inventive uh, events and mm-hmm. collaborations with local Shakespeare theatres or arts uh, centres or whatever. And all of that material is also on the website, so there are things called Barred Bits. Mm-hmm. One of the stations produced... Um, Sixty or ninety-second short bits of costumed actors, um, focusing on some bit of Shakespearean language that he either invented or popularized, Um, as a as a sort of big public community event. I'm pretty sure this was Nashville. They decided to have a Shakespeare sort of festival all day in a big park, Mm -hmm. and there was a sort of dried up stream with a footbridge that ran went over the over the stream. And they got all the women to stand on the bridge and they got all the men to stand below and they counted up and claim it's the world's largest ever case of the balcony scene from romeo and juliet <laughs>
1: amazing
0: amazing <laughs> and they all so,
1: did the speeches of, so a lot of this material is right there it's all on our website uh, shakespeare i think i think so and there's oh, yeah. there are quizzes
0: and there's how good is your knowledge of shakespeare and what's your favorite soliloquy and all that kind of thing
1: Stephen, there's another program that we're airing uh, this month uh called shakespeare's tomb uh, which sounds like a very interesting concept that pbs has brought us can you tell us
0: about that well i haven't seen it so f- forgive me for having only a only some knowledge but there's a famous inscription on shakespeare's tomb alleged tomb mm-hmm. i suppose we should say in the church, uh, the church in uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, where he, is, where he was born and died and is presumably indeed buried there. And it threatens anyone who moves my bones, quote-unquote, with a curse. Oh. Um, Cursed be he who moves my bones is the second line of the inscription. And naturally enough, that has provoked interest from people who care about these things, is what would, what would be the reason for this curse? and why would he think his bones would be moved anyway yeah. to which nobody has had an answer for a very long time about 400 years so an enterprising archaeologist with a lot of cool new technological toys has not dug up shakespeare's grave but has used um, ground penetrating radar sort of zapped it, it's sonic right. this and hyper, hyper that to try to read through the stone uh the tombstone what's under the grave what's in mm-hmm. the grave and i heard him on the radio last week and spoiler alert it appears that shakespeare's body is in the grave or rather a body is in the grave but no head tune in <laughs> tune in <laughs> exactly more and of course the you know the, the immediate thing that comes to mind for somebody who, th- who thinks about shakespeare and probably lots of people is well, there's that famous scene in Hamlet where the gravedigger... Alas, poor... And, alas, poor Yorick. I knew him well. And in our, in our episode on, on um, of Shakespeare Uncovered on Hamlet, David Tennant, who was the, uh, the presenter of that episode, he goes to uh, Stratford-upon-Avon to the Royal Shakespeare Company where they have a very prized skull in their prop department... Mm-hmm. Apparently, there was a Shakespeare lover in the middle of the 20th century who, when he died, bequeathed his skull to the, Sha- the Royal Shakespeare Company on condition that he would, his skull would appear in a production of Hamlet
1: as Yorick. <laughs> With certain billing things. <laughs> that, that's a wonderful <laughs> story. That's wonderful. I should point out, too, that the, uh, the tenant uh, uh, Hamlet, is is being streamed over this period of time. Yes. So people can can get to our website and stream that. That's right. We we co-produced the David Tennant Hamlet, which
0: features um, also features Patrick Stewart playing Claudius. Uh, we co-produced after that um, the a, an original filmed production of Macbeth
1: with Patrick Stewart playing Macbeth. Um, Excellent production. There's a theme yes, here, Patrick Stewart, yeah, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Uh, you're also doing some little Shakespeare traveling later in the month <laughs> How did, what's that about well you know these educational
0: travel things you get these uh, you get alumni magazines and and brochures in the mail um, so we started talking to a a, a new cruise company it's actually French based uh, that's expanding its worldwide travel programs and um, we thought that our programming. I mean, we've, from time to time, people like David Horn and Fred Kaufman have, have gone and done a presentation on a ship for a, a couple mm-hmm, of days, yeah. showed some video, uh, brought an expert. A lot of our
1: patrons
0: go to this. Right, we have a patron travel program. So we started talking to, to this company, Ponant, P O N A N T, about several options, one of which was to do something around Shakespeare around this time when the anniversary is in mm-hmm. everybody's minds. And um, so I'm going to London. Right after the anniversary, I'm going on the 28th of April, and on the 29th, I'm going with the group to the Globe Theatre to see a production of *Midsummer Night's Dream*. Christ. And Richard Denton is coming with me to help entertain the, the the visitors and share stories from the making of *Shakespeare Uncovered*. The next day, we're all going up to Stratford-on-Avon. You can't go to Stratford on a cruise ship; <laughs> uh, you wouldn't get very far. Alternate transportation so we, for we, that lake. Using something with wheels. Um, and I hope something quicker than Shakespeare's day when it took three days to ride to uh, Stratford. And then the next day we're going off on the ship down the Thames across to, um, across to Belgium, and while we're on that part of the tri- trip, I'm going to do some presentations about Shakespeare on film and Shakespeare on TV, and, um, and then there's also a Shakespeare scholar, a real one, uh, from a British university coming to continue the, the theme for a couple more days after that.
1: No, Stephen, we've really been focusing on on Shakespeare today, but you have such a a broader role here that we'd love to have you come back and talk with us again in the future about all the many hats that that you wear. So, again, thank you, and have a wonderful time on your uh, trip to Stratford-upon-Avon later (laughs) in the month. Thank you, Tom. I'd be delighted to come back. And thank you for listening today. Join us again soon for our next podcast. And please let us know what you think. You can reach out to us at upnext at WNET.org. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart.